when the Reformed Church did come out and declare homosexual relationships to be sinful, there was an opportunity for Calvin to, to reform itself. Um, and it's decided not to do that. And, mm. and now it's going gonna, it's gonna to die. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here as usual with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church in Hilton Head, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Hey, how are you? Been better. Doing okay. Yeah, we're recording this the Wednesday afternoon after Election Day. How are you guys holding up? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to move to Florida. <laughs> so depressing I mean, I mean people chose people had the clear choice of you know all of the more of the same and so many people chose more of the same it's unbelievable to me I can't what's baffling to me is I think you know a lot of it the with the economy the way it is I and mean, people are people are actively actually hurting I mean the the, the vast majority of people are are rich enough to overcome the the inflationary yeah, but if you're a single, if you're a single things, so but but they but so that usually in a normal in a in a normal world would have meant you know the incumbent party is is given a drubbing uh, and and then you know it seems like they're willing it seems and maybe I'm reading the, pop, the 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 voting populist wrong but wrongly but it seems that they're willing to pay 10% more for groceries and gas so long as they can keep mur- murdering babies. Right. And that's that. Yeah. Well, that's, listen, if you're the, a single, if, if you're that's like a the case, single... we're under, we're under significant judgment. I mean, this is just a, a terrible, terrible. Well, place. but when we were in our twenties, it was expected that we were going to get jobs and going to get married and have to support a family. And there was sort of a trajectory of, you know, the very least human development. But if you're like a mid 20 year old now who wants to just have, you know, decriminalize weed as much you know unprotected sex as you want consequence free you know student loans forgiven i mean don't on down the line um right. well then of course you it's more of the same because the well, people that are actually I mean, hurting yeah. are the ones trying to provide um a better <laughs> life for themselves and their families you know the sort of the as mark well, the ones who are hurting are the ones who are paying the the school bills for the ones who are voting to <laughs> To make everything worse for them. Well, I thought I saw a funny tweet. Someone said maybe we should have rethought having all the conservatives move to Florida in the whole country. <laughs> like, maybe we should have. But I, it's a judgment. I mean, how I, 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 you know, you it was so clear. And what I think was really disturbing um, from someone who I generally just vote pro life. Uh, you know, that's my one issue, and that's why I say you know John Bell Edwards in Louisiana is a perfect example. He's a Democrat, but he's a pro-life Democrat. And Louisiana has some of the strictest anti-abortion laws. And I think the the dialogue amongst de- Republicans and Democrats in that state is much more healthy than it is in other places because it's taken this this giant moral uh, atrocity off the table. But that being said, I um, you know, I thought that there would be more when the when the stakes were so clear. If you send the same people back, then we will codify Roe. You would think that that was going to alarm the Republican base so dramatically that it would have, uh, you know, had the turnout been twice what it normally was. But that was didn't seem to be much of a factor at all. There's I a was, split there, though, because here in Kentucky, we reelected Rand Paul by a landslide, who is fervently pro-life. But we I also think related to Matt at some level because they're about the same size people. We we also had a constitutional amendment that would have 
clarified that there is no right to an abortion in the Kentucky Constitution, and that was voted down overwhelmingly. So there's a there's a divide between people who are willing and wanting to vote for pro-life candidates who will then, I think, say something like, well, it's not really my business what other people do in terms of abortion, which is a, well, it's, a divide that I don't really I, understand, but seems it's, to be it's true. And it's the same. It's the same sort of confusion we saw at the um, the National Conservative Conference. I think it was two years ago, where they had you know two of the four main headlining speakers were married uh, homosexual men. You know, at the conservative conference, you're like, there's nothing conservative about that. I mean, you know, we can be social. Like I think it was Doug Murray and um, uh, Glenn Greenwald. I think were the two. I think uh, it was Ruben. Was it Ruben? Oh, maybe. But at any rate. You know, again, and they had some interesting ideas. Um, and, you know, I'd rather than be on conservative side as opposed to, you know, progressive. That being said, there has been a disconnect from, um, you know, traditional conservative values, for lack of a better word, and what is passing as Republican or even conservatism today. I mean, it's. Well, I, I also have been, I've been paying attention to some, to some postmortems this morning. And uh, it turns out, you know, a lot, a lot of the in, in the, a lot of states where abortion was on the on the ballot, the RNC explicitly told candidates to steer away from the issue. Like, don't don't talk about it so much. So 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 the left was you know pounding pounding our our guys uh, with the Roe thing. And actually, the Roe actually abortions, especially when we're talking about abortion on demand up to the up to the moment of birth and after, that's a winning issue for us. And and yet the RNC was saying, no, no, don't don't focus on that. Focus on crime. And you know, crime's fine, but that that the the the, the drumbeat was: you focus on crime, you focus on crime, you focus on crime. Not, and and let leave the abortion thing alone. We don't want to touch that. It's amazing. And if that's the Maybe case, Anne's right. Maybe we should bring a monarchist party back. Let's go find. <laughs> <laughs> we could have some. You know, like our Catholic, the Sobermari is right. We should have the integrationalist party. Like we'll bring the either monarch or a pope back in. Yeah. And, uh, arm them. <laughs> yeah, it's um. It's going to be some interesting time forward because we thought, I, I forget who I was reading, but they were saying, we thought, you know, we thought that when they had the trans was the, the whole trans thing would finally be exposed, how ridiculous all this was. And not only has it not exposed or has exposed it, but not only there has, has there not been a pullback, there's been a doubling down. Um, you know, we thought drag queen story hour was somehow going to shock parents. Instead, we see parents bringing their children to it. I mean, and down the line, you know, we thought that, that the moment you could have some of these unelected or these elected petty tyrants in the school board that put masks on two-year-olds while they were, you know, going to the Bahamas or whatever, um, you know, doing Zoom from Jamaica. We thought the moment we had an opportunity to get rid of these people, we would. And and what have we done? You know, we just we've, we we will get the politicians we deserve. You know, you'll get the king you 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 want. You know, in the Old Testament. And I think, you know, the the quality of our rulers is a judgment on us, um, good and bad. And I think we are looking at um, more years of judgment than less going forward. I mean, this is. It's really quite frightening. The only hope I had, to be honest, is I was of the mindset yesterday that it would not be smart for Ron DeSantis to challenge Trump because Trump was going to have helped bring this wave despite not spending any of his own campaign money and therefore was going to just be unswayed by any um, suggestion that maybe he wouldn't run. I think I think DeSantis has, um, I mean, I bet there's just talking about this nonstop over there because uh you know it was really interesting to see that none of the trump's 
explicitly backed people did very well. And yet we had DeSantis and Abbott and Kemp and some of these conservative uh, governors who actually turns out, you know, were able to, to not just run a campaign, but actually run a state, you know, were overwhelmingly elected in many cases. And so maybe there's a chance that we'll get a Trumpless 24, which, um, you know, it seems like it could be a positive, that, that would be a positive <laughs> development. Although someone described the other day, they're like, they might need one more, one more round of the radiation in the system um, before it gets clean, you know? So I was like, well, it will remain to be seen, but goodness gracious, what a day and what a night. Well, and it seems like, you know, with these races out West, it's just going to keep going. So we'll, uh, we'll leave it there for now, at least. Um, we did want to talk about something that's been a little bit swallowed up by all the <laughs> run up to the election coverage. want to rewind a couple of weeks and talk about an issue that was big in the so-called evangelical world, uh, the tense standoff between Calvin University and some of its faculty. As a quick reminder, Calvin is a school of the Christian Reformed Church, a denomination which has been historically biblically faithful on matters of human identity and sexuality. Recently, though, several faculty members, uh, notably James K.A. Smith and Kristen Cobus Dumay, have seemed at the very least to push up against the edge of the biblical fidelity of those stances. So it was news when the Christian Reformed Church reaffirmed its position that marriage was to be reserved to a, sorry, that sex was to be reserved to the lifelong union between one man and one woman. And it seemed like biblical orthodoxy was going to win out and these questionable teachers would have to move on. But then at the end of October, just a couple weeks ago, the university's board allowed a group of anonymous teachers to dissent from a sexuality clause in the school's statement of faith, allowing them to keep their jobs, even though they disagree with the schools and the churches and the Bible's stated position. So, fellas, what's the point of a statement of faith then? Can churches, schools, and other institutions survive this way? Do Constitution and canons, for instance, which the ACNA uses to govern itself. Do these things have value if people are just allowed to dissent from them and keep on going? No, I mean, I think, I think Calvin's toast at this point. I mean, as far as orthodoxy goes, it's only, it's only a matter of time because now they've, now they've just decided that orthodoxy is optional and when orthodoxy is optional, uh, priesthood is prescribed. So we're going to have uh, – Calvin is going to be is going to be done. It's, it's, it already is done. When it was – when um, – K.K. DeMay and James K. Smith, I, I figured when that when I read that they were both and some other pre, pre, professors there were both were all, all of them trying to raise rise up in opposition to to this thing. I thought, you know, she is her her name recognition and his, too, are it's so great that I bet the college is going to buckle. I mean, you know, you don't want to lose your star. Uh, your star professors um, over over something like this, they're going to find a way to, to compromise. And sure enough, that's what happened. Um, and yeah, so now so now the, the they <laughs> they have to professors who teach at Calvin. The rule has been they have to uh, to assent to the the Reformed Church's doctrine. And now now they don't, I guess. Um, and that throws everything up in the air. There's there's now no standard that anyone can be held to we're not just talking about the sexuality thing but, but if, if you can dissent on this you can dissent on other things um and and they will i mean calvin is already woke i'm not sure if, if you were have you been familiar with that this the kind of history of calvin or not but it's been woke for a number of years it's not it's not as if this were like a a case of a college that had been 
you know, solidly orthodox and biblically grounded who just, you know, the, you know, KK Dumay just kind of snuck in under the radar. No, no, right. she's, 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 her writing is a good taste for the tenor of much of the education that goes on there. So it's a well place. Uh, but still, I mean, if, if there was an opportunity when the, when the reformed church did come out and declare homosexual relationships to be sinful, there was an opportunity for Calvin to, to reform itself. Um, and it's decided not to do that, and, mm-hmm. and now it's going to it's going to die. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, the, it's it's just the least surprising dissension, you know, in in public Christian quote unquote Christian discourse that I can imagine. I mean, the fact that that um, James K. Smith and Kobe Dumay have uh, been skirting and sort of um, obfuscating around these questions for years now, it seems like you know, ever since she wrote her book and we cared about it all she basically refused to answer the, the direct question about her positions on these issues. And so it's not surprising that she is part of the group that's wants to have a quote unquote conscience clause here. Well, who I, who I really think is the, the, the real losers and the real cowards in this situation is the, the board of Calvin. I think that, you know, to whatever extent they join that board with the trust, you know, as trustees of the university and its relationship to the church um, they should be ashamed of themselves. You know, as a, someone as a board member of Trinity School for Ministry, I mean, the, you know, we have um, at times had to, you know, remind people connected to the school of our statement of faith and the various sort of commitments that not just we have made, but that we have been entrusted with persevering and maintaining, uh, preserving and maintaining, excuse me. And so that this board caved in in the face of this uh, dissent is really, for me, uh, the saddest piece of all of this, because what's what's the good of a board? Like, why do you have a board of trustees? It reminds me of that book, which I think is you know, ever-present, really, God and Man at Yale, that the late William F. Buckley wrote uh, when he was like 27 after he left Yale, because he saw this progressive uh, turn that Yale was undergoing. And he wrote this appeal to the board, essentially, and said, you have been entrusted with preserving this heritage that, you know, is far greater than you and a lot, lot older, um, please stop it, you know, stop the long decline of the institution. And of course, you know, that was, that was just a prophetic book because it just only has gotten worse. You know, who knows what he would be thinking of Yale's um, infamous sex week, you know, that they have now where you're, aren't you glad that your, you know, your 18, 19 year old daughter can be introduced to the joys of sex week at Yale. You know, she, she, she is in 75,000 extracurriculars in order to get into the Ivy league. And this is what, um, you know, it's become at any rate, that's who I think is really the saddest part here because they had an opportunity to make an example of courage Christian courage and conviction, which actually would is going to be remembered, that there are unbelieving, cynical heretics who will try to um, try to undermine and overthrow the faith is nothing new. And we don't know any of their names, you know, but we know all the names of the people who actually stood firm and and perpetuated the teaching of the Bible. So I think it's it's, you know, and of course, I can only imagine the students you know, I mean, I was a college student, you know, you get all excited about all these things, perceived injustices and get all fired up and emotional. And, you know, I mean, they didn't have sit-ins or anything, but you can imagine all of this, this is the energy that was part of this, you know, radically self, um, self, uh, sacrificial act of, you know, standing against the man here that these teachers did. And it's just, it's just the same old sad song, second verse, same as the first, you know, little, yeah. They, they had a, they already they already had an LGBTQ organization right. active on active on campus and in fact and I think was it Calvin the, where the student body president was also 
Yeah, yeah, and KK Demay you know, loved her, right? <laughs> uh, so, so there's this there was an episode in which um, two of the Christian students on Calvin, and I I'm, I'm saying that because there's not that <laughs> the two Christian, Christian students, students. <laughs> uh, set up a table, and I'm not sure what they have is it was material Bibles, but also material uh, talking about the sinfulness of homosexual sin. And the mob of the WGQ students just mobbed the table and right, just saying, you know, no justice, no peace, yelling and screaming and stuff like that. And then on the same day, K James K. Smith you know, takes a picture of himself with a trans oh, yeah, yeah. T-shirt on, right, to to express his support for the victims, right. And the victims are not the they're not the two students being mobbed by the uh, by the justice warriors, but it's the, the the victims are the are the LGBT people. So that got a big play. I mean, people were surprised by James K. Smith because a lot of Anglicans, a lot of people who came into the Anglican yeah. church, came in through through his his influence. What, right? is, it, what is this book called? The um, it's uh, the Liturgy it's about of the, Habits. No, yeah, no, I forget no, what it was. The Liturgy of the Ordinary. Is yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. No, no, it was um. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll remember it. But anyway, <laughs> but, but I mean, I, for all you listeners, JD no, is no, closing no. a nostril to help himself listen, help himself remember. <laughs> That's a very private thing. To, uh, <laughs> it's actually not that private. It's supposedly uh, it helps spark your memory by stimulating the other side of your brain. I read this in a definitive bathroom reading book that was one of those little board board books, like you know, hundred things you would never know. And I read it, and um, so you've been doing that. Does it work? Well, we'll see. What's the name so, of the book? I, I don't just y'all keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't. I, I could this more. Yeah. But like, okay, so a lot of intellectual, more a lot of more more intellectual people who come who've come into Anglicanism have come through J.K. Smith. Um, so not you know, Tish Warren. I think has a more popular level uh, writing with her book uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary. But I mean, J.K. Smith, I think, had an appeal among people who consider themselves uh, more intellectually uh, grounded and. Um, and his, his argument for the for desire literature. in the kingdom, desire. In oh, the there kingdom. you see that the nostril worked. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so the, so that, I mean, I, I know a couple of people who are very solid, very solid Anglican ministers right now who came in under his. Well, we need to keep them. We need to keep. Yeah. And then they were, they were horrified. Guys. They were horrified. <laughs> I mean, they, they, some of, one of them was sending me pictures of, of, of this thing. So, and, and, you know, in the minute when the minute K, K to May uh, would not, affirm the orthodox position uh when she was asked point blank about it i forgot this is on twitter uh, oh i think yeah, danny twitter. burke that was the danny day. burke yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, then, we had him on this show can't, if you can't affirm orthodoxy then you're not an orthodox person <laughs> that, that, that it's, i'm sorry if you can't say yes the orthodox position is true then you're not orthodox. If you if you if you say, well, I'm not quite sure about the Trinity. I want to you know I want to think through the whole Trinity thing. Well, then you need to step away from teaching at a Christian college and and not presume to influence students. If you have the same thing with sexuality, you're not you're not at that point within the boundaries of the Christian faith. If you if you question an essential like that, that's right. I wonder, is there a way because anytime you put together a statement of faith or a constitution and ask people to assent to it. Is the question just sort of an honor system where you're trusting people to be honest about what they actually believe rather than in some sense, submitting themselves to the idea because they want to be in your circle, but 
not really believing the thing that you believe, just sort of being willing to pretend? What is the mechanism by which we can protect these core tenants from, well, we've been saying it for months, like wolves in sheep's clothing. I mean, I don't think we can peer in anyone's heart and see now they do genuinely believe this, but I think we can say the, the you by, well, I'll, I'll use my diocese as an example. Our diocese now requires subscription to the articles, right? Um, on the, for clergy. So if I were to stand up from the pulpit or something or in, or in, or in class on Sunday morning and say, you know, I think uh, article nine is all wrong and that we're actually the fall hasn't, didn't really happen and we're fine. We're totally good. Um, then the I, explosive I would, implant that uh, your bishop puts in your head. Right. But I would expect the bishop to call me and say, well, if that's what you believe, then you've got to either leave this diocese or, or we're going to have to you know, begin some kind of judicial proceeding. Um, but that's that's the that's the that's the that's the way confessionalism confessions should be applied. Is it, you, I, I can't see into your heart, but this is what you need to profess. And and so long as you're professing that and not teaching contrary to it, then then you're fine. But the minute you begin to teach contrary to it or refuse to profess it, then then you've got to move on to some other organization. But this is the fatal flaw, I think, and uh, that has that has that has really weakened Anglicanism since. Uh, I would say since the beginning of the Anglo-Catholic movement, please don't shoot me, Anglo-Catholic readers, don't hunt, don't hunt me down, yeah. or listeners. But but when but when we but when the church decided not to enforce the articles as the rule and standard of our faith, uh, as a rec- as recognizing that they're the, interpreta- the correct interpretations of scripture, then we open the door for uh, liberalism to come in. Uh, you, you, you have, once you decide that your confession is no longer going to be something you enforce, then, then you, it's not just one issue you're compromising on, you're compromising on, compromising on just about every issue. Yeah. And that's what entered in that whole, you know, Anglicanism is not a confessional church. Yep. You know, you'll hear people say that, you know, we are, we're a, you know, we're church, uh, of the prayer book, you know, we're, we're sort of bonded, bounded by our liturgy, but we're not, we don't have, you know, statements of faith and things like this other than the creeds. I mean, all that type of speech came in um, around the same time. And I agree with you. I, I mean, that's why I've been heartened by the ACNA. I think that we, yeah. you know, we explicitly say that they're in an articles of book of homilies for that matter, you know, and I've been, I've been just teaching through my class with uh, my congregation here um, in preparation for adopting that we were fully adopting the, um, 2019 prayer book just because we had been under threat of lawsuit for so long no one wanted to buy anything new at all so we were just kind of in limbo but um you know one of the things that i pointed out to him also which i was thinking about even yesterday during the election is that we have an explicit affirmation that we talked about before of of defending and protecting life from conception to natural death you know and we've talked about that before but i think that you know that's a that's an addition to our canons on um you know i don't know where exactly what i think it's in the third section it doesn't really matter but you know that for instance is something that we could we can use um if i were a bishop you know if i were if like when i'm a as a rector i can just say listen this is the church that i'm beholden to this is these are the things that i believe and um i'm grateful for that you know and so if 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 there were people if you were could just willingly wantonly flaunt all of these things then you know you're well you you cease to be a, a church in any sort yeah. of organizational sense you you're just sort of a i don't know what you are just a group of 
of people claiming to be Christians. Oh, you get to wear the nice robes and, you know, look, all the candles and stuff. But well, that's but the, so, yeah, yeah, go ahead. That's, you know, that's, that, that's the selection is kind of interesting to just to watch on Twitter. We have, you know, ACNA clergy, even one person who ran for the Bishop of South Carolina and thankfully lost, but pushing, pushing a pro-abortion candidate, despite what our canons say. Well, and it doesn't end there. I mean, I think that there have been, in general, as the divide, particularly post Dobbs, has gotten so clear. I mean, explicitly said, you know, if you send these, you know, Biden, if you send these people back, we will codify Roe. You know, you would think that a church like ours, given our the prominence of our archbishop and many bishops, even in the March for Life and this canon and all these things, you would think that there would be yeah. um, a concerted effort to, you know, to say, listen, uh, we'll like the REC. You know, I thought that was interesting. Um, if one of our uh, dear brothers in the jurisdiction that we love and are so grateful for the founding uh i would say it's probably the, the i would say it's like one of the i would say the best the best thing the best i would say too yes the um the rec <laughs> you know says tells their clergy to explicitly uh support candidates who are pro-life in this respect and so you know i was like thank god you know that that, that would be um again it's it's all part of a whole which is that we are in a situation we have lived through um and we're 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 per- hopefully pushing back against any what's it called entropy um again in our own church where these small infractions these small um sort of turning a blind eye eventually lead to um, wholesale rejection. And so, you know, we're not talking about um, peering into people's souls, you know, and we're actually not talking about a long, that a list that long. I mean, I was explaining to someone why Article 6 and Article 20 are actually so freeing, because I was like, you know, the Bible doesn't actually have, particularly in the New Covenant, that many uh, laws and regulations that we are beholden to. I mean, that's really what's so amazing about, it. you know, I mean, you can have the Ten Commandments generally explicated. You can have, um, you know, a sort of the, the, the prohibition around um, adultery and fornication, you know, which are fairly straightforward, you know, one man, one woman, one marriage for life, no adultery, no fornication till death do you part. You know, it's very short. It's a very, it's a relatively short and freeing document. You know, I mean, if you give me a list of things, you know, it's a little bit like the difference between the American constitution and the EU constitution, which is still being sort of written. You know, it's like it's tens and tens of thousands of pages or something versus, you know, what, three or whatever it is, you know, that we have this, we have this relatively um, short, but but incredibly deep and profound set of prescriptions and prohibitions that, that we believe are actually life-giving and affirming and true. And if you stop believing that, well, then you're going to turn a blind eye to all of the infractions because you're, what you're really saying is, I don't think it's, I don't, I, you know, did God really say? You know, it's like these people in the winsomeness debate, you know, they're saying, well, you need to be nicer when you disagree with, with people that are pro-abortion. It's like, well... That may be true in some cases, but you don't seem to really care what they're doing or you don't certainly seem to think that what they're doing is murder because, you know, to treat a murderer with respect and humility is something that Jesus could do possibly. But most of us have a hard time if we actively think that person is is committing murder. And that also Um, counts as part of their character. That's exactly right. Yeah. James Woodsman nailing that too, because they're saying that just because you're, you say something kind of with, you know, sweetly doesn't mean you're not still spewing, you know, rank heresy and vile uh, lies and profane and, and, and blasphemous things, you know? Um, and of course we saw this all with the bishops, you know, never for, you know, you know, the, the devil appointed, you know, like Bishop Spong happened to be, you know, one of the most affable, well-spoken, you know, um, nice guys you could ever want. And look at the untold horror that man perpetrated on the, on the church um, and going down the line, you know I mean? It's like, and so I think, 
you know, I think we look at Calvin, we look at these other institutions and you say, we pray for some, some backbone in some of these, the people who have leadership, because if you, if you have been given the responsibility to lead then lead um, and make the tough, tough decision, you know, ruffle the feathers and, and take your blows, but that's what the job requires, you know? And if you don't want to do that, well then you, you know, you shouldn't aspire to that, that level of leadership and those board members, and the, uh, I mean, the church for that matter, like if I were the part of the denomination, I would just cut off ties with the entire school. Like, okay. You know, I mean, I don't, again, financially, it might be disastrous or whatever, but it's like you, uh, how, how do you defend your, if you're a minister in that church and your, your, your primary institution allows for this uh, quote unquote um, conscience clause and you have a disagreement with it, how can you abide by that at this point? You know, how can you with straight face tell your congregation anything other than, well, this is an adiaphora, this is a secondary issue. I don't, I don't see how you could. So anyway, it's a, it's a, it's sad in one sense, but it's also, again, clarifying on the other. And on the other side of this, whenever we get to the other side, we're going to have a lot clearer idea of who's, you know, who's with us and who's against us, as it were. Well, and those of us who've come out of the Episcopal Church know this route all too well. You know, the, it always starts with a conscience clause for a few objectors, and then there's just no turning that car around. It's going downhill too fast, and there are more and more conscience clauses about more and more things, and then all of a sudden, the entire thing is a conscience clause and gets thrown out, and you can basically believe whatever you want because so-and-so before you did and nothing happened to them. And so by the time you have a leader who thinks perhaps to do something, nothing can be done. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the pattern. And it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, it does, it does kind of follow the pattern of, of evil. <laughs> evil is by nature parasitic, isn't it? I mean, it needs a, it needs a host, a living host to, to, uh, evil isn't a thing in itself. There's no such thing as like just pure unadulterated evil that couldn't exist. And St. Augustine uh, talks about this. Uh, so evil is always the corruption of a good thing. Good can good can exist by itself. Evil cannot. And so and so you do, of course, you know, those who are teaching falsehood, who are agents of hell and who become agents of hell while residing within the boundaries of an orthodox institution are not going to leave. I mean, what, what are they going to do? going to form uh, their own hell club? I mean, it's not going to work. They have, they have to, they have to corrupt, they have to corrupt the, the, the living oh. institution. Right. And then, and then once that's done, they go to, they go to another one. They, they, they suck <clears throat> it down. They suck all the blood out. It, it collapses into a, a just a, emptied out corpse and they find some other institution to empty so that's what's happening right right now in the physical church i mean that's it's almost been sucked dry the the the, the body is 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 pretty much a zombie right now um, yeah, as we it, saw as we saw with gene robinson at the false church i couldn't that's <laughs> that my awesome. my childhood yeah. church and as you as you said on twitter matt it's a ghost town a complete and utter yeah. ghost town there that's where i became an anglican uh at that church when i was visiting uh, Liza and I were starting to date, and she's related to um, John Yates uh, by their his her father's uh, first cousin. Anyway, uh, I was there, and I heard with a fully packed service them singing classical choir repertoire in the service where it was supposed to be. And we had this sermon that was great from John, and we had the liturgy. And I was like, oh, I'm sold. But it was, you know, it was right there in the same building, the same, you know, that giant auditorium they built. Um, that was, I don't know, delicious is the word that comes to mind. To watch it. So it was uh, great to see. Oh, I, I interned there and, um, when I was a yeah, seminary. Yeah, we all went through there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, was, I remember if you, if you showed up late on a Sunday morning, 
Um, and there were like three services for, for him. If you showed up late, um, you, you were sitting in the back, they had this, they called it the Episcodome because of the, 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 the kind of stadium-like structure it was. You had to sit in the very back. Well, you know, all of this reminds me of how excited I am to go to GAFCON this year because it was when watching the Lambeth, I was watching the Lambeth Eucharist uh, like five o'clock in the morning of the Sunday when it was happening. And it was the most beautiful thing you could have ever seen. I mean, I don't know if you saw it, you know, all down to like the, the, the choristers, you know, the uh, wearing their frilly collars and all of the, it was so beautiful and yet so cold because I was struck by how it was just empty. It was like all pomp and circumstance and no, no substance because, you know, all the things. And I emailed our bishop that morning at like six o'clock and I hope he wasn't checking, you know, I assume he wasn't, but I just emailed him because I was like, please let me go to GAFCON because I realized then that this was over. Like, you know, this might not be the GAFCON, the GAFCON where it's finally over, but it's going to be more over now than it was then. And it just reminds, this whole conversation reminds me of just how grateful I am that there are people who still believe in what Paul would say, you know, the exceeding sinfulness of sin but also the great hope of actual redemption in, in light of that, and that are willing to, to, uh, to actually lay down their lives for the sheep. You know, I mean, this is what we're watching in real time. And I count myself, you know, I'm grateful that, that I, I hope that I'm doing that uh, as best I can uh, for my relatively small sheep pen. But I'm grateful that there are these bishops and archbishops who are taking great, who are uh, making bold statements and, and taking lots of um, public heat for these positions and these very uncomfortable and un- unpopular positions from abortion to same-sex marriage to actual forgiveness. You know, I mean, that's what's, I was talking to someone the other day about this, you know, really offends people is not the God of love, but how he loves that he actually could forgive people, you know, cause someone was like, Oh, even Putin. I was like, uh, yes. Yeah. I was like, I was like, that's not who I thought oh, you were well, going to say. Putin, but, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, no, okay. Well, that's, that's the one too far. <laughs> that's but I mean, a bridge too far. And I, and that of course was a, that was a cause of great offense to this person. And he said, well, you know, I just don't want to believe in a God that, that could forgive someone like Putin. And I was like, well, well, you don't believe in the Christian God then, because that is what about someone like you? God. Well, I mean, that was the implication on the other side, but um, we didn't get all the way to that point. But <laughs> at any rate, all of this conversation is just making me more um, one excited to to be a part of or grateful to be a part of this movement, excited to watch it continue to develop and also is a uh, continue to be cautioned in myself and as we do this, even others to take seriously those, the patrimony we've been given, the, the vows and the canons and the, the structure that has, has been reestablished and, and defended it, it defended it with, yeah. with great affection uh, because this is a, it's a worthy seaworthy vessel. And I have, I really have a hard time with people who, who don't love it. You know, you can love something you can, you can judge and you can critique it and you can work for its betterment. That's, that's what a family is, but, uh, but to not appreciate how we got here and what the alternatives are with some humility and respect is really, um, is really difficult. And so that's, you know, that's where I sort of feel like we're part of like the secondary trustees of the ACNA, you know, as it's, as her priests. And um, we pray for some courage and conviction that, well, like the people at Calvin college board obviously didn't have. You know, I've, I mean, we when we first we left the Episcopal Church, we we redesigned our m- membership structure, and I mean, I'm not sure how how you guys do it, but I remember that in, at least in our at our in our diocese, the diocese of uh, Central New York, basically anybody who 
had been baptized there and maybe showed up once on Christmas and Easter was considered a member and could vote. And I mean, there's no doctrinal requirements whatsoever. It's just like, you know, just be there. So, so we had a, like a number of fights in our, in, in annual meetings um, because you had people who hadn't show, who just didn't go to church at all and then show up at the annual meeting and just kind of you know, hold forth because they don't like the, the the direction the church is going, you know, toward orthodoxy away from, <laughs> away from Gene Robinson stuff. So when we moved out of the Episcopal church, we, 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 we before we were affiliated with any real diocese, we, we redesigned our membership structure so that members have to sign on to a, a to not to the three articles, but to a basic statement of, of Christian faith, which includes a, a statement about marriage and sexuality. And if they can't sign on to that, they can't be members and they have no, they can't vote. You can't teach, you can't do anything um, in our church unless you have, unless you have that, that basic foundational thing agreed to. And if you, and if you, and if you, something you say or do counts against that, counts against that part of the contract is, or the covenant is that you then by, by turning against the thing that you've agreed to, you've also decided that you're no longer a member of the church. So there, so it's an automatic, and that, that takes place, that's an automatic uh, self-removal. So the reason I bring that up is, is I think, you know, a lot of the stuff starts at the parish level. You know, you, yeah. um, you, you get people in parishes who are heterodox or who are confused and you don't have a parish structure a parent and a parish leadership that's willing to enforce orthodoxy then you know you could you're you're lay our lay people you know some of them serve on provincial boards and serve on diocesan boards the, the thing spreads it doesn't it doesn't stay contained and that's it'll right. hurt your church well that's why i think it's anyone listening if you haven't it's i found it being incredibly fruitful just to teach through what we call the foundational documents in our prayer book um you know as as normative and definitive for the ACNA because you know we do we have a lot of people who uh, retire down here uh, and this was true in Mount Pleasant too who have been Episcopalians in other places and show up even if they had been in a good Episcopal church they still wonder what's the ACNA what's different all the questions and you know a refresher on this can't hurt and just walking through like the Jerusalem Declaration will bring up all of those questions Matt that you I mean not I don't I think it's fine if you have them sign a specific one that's unique to your church but but we when I go walk through people i go straight to the jerusalem declaration and the 39 articles but i i hover over the jerusalem declaration because in that you have all of those questions you know we talk about marriage we talk about the word of scripture uniqueness of christ these things and just from the very beginning you know and very straightforward and not even not apologetic in the least just say this is these are the things that our church believes this is what you're going to the foundational documents that sort of encapsulate uh, the, the rest of what we are going to be speaking about here and so if that's something that you're excited about then, you know, come on. And if it's something that you, you know, there's plenty of other options out there. And so we have this very frank discussion and and I was grateful to have it honed over the years when I was at Christchurch because we had, as a diocese, only joined the ACNA about a year before I came. And so there was all this concern and questions like, what exactly is it? What's the prayer book? What's the difference? And I found it so fruitful just to, to have those arguments taken off the table. We've said this before and sort of kicked up a notch to where they, um, or down, I guess, into the foundation where we don't have to be apologetic or qualify or, or anything. We just say, this is, 
this is what we believe. And it's been the most freeing and life-giving experience of my entire sort of adult life as a minister, because for so long, you know, we had to be like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And, you yeah. know, it was like navigating like a, like a secret Jane handshake. Austen novel or something, yeah. you know, who's got a knife and where's, oh, that's not really Jane Austen. Is it, um, who's got a, Agatha Agatha Christie? Christie, right. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and so that's where I would say in all of this, I don't know, I don't know how we ended up here from Calvin, other than to say we have, we have these documents, we have these convictions, they have been hard wrought and, and lovingly, painfully, lovingly curated over, over decades, centuries, well, centuries, millennia in terms of the Bible, obviously decades in terms of the ACNA and its formation. And um, I'm grateful, I'm grateful for that. And I hope that I am, when I'm in a situation like those board members at Calvin, that I have the courage of my convictions and that I haven't become cynical and, and weak. And I pray that uh, he continues to hold us firm and, and steadfast in the midst of this, because we have something, we have a, a, a legacy to protect and a, and a future to um, prepare for, which is a great responsibility. Pray for the bishops, support them, help them to be men who can hold fast. That Amen. one strong leader like that can really hold a church in place, and they have our prayers. Amen. Well, thank you for listening to Stand Firm this week. That's all the time that we have. If you would like to keep the conversation going, can be in touch with us, rate and review the podcast on iTunes, or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. Or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon and Lord Willing. We'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.